Voice of Glittering Delights! And here, your host, Dandry Leyland. V almost didn't make it to the UK. For some reason, the American TV miniseries wasn't as popular on these shows as TV movies or imported sitcoms and drama series. I do remember we did get Shogun, starring Richard Chamberlain, and Lace, starring Phoebe Cates. I think we got North and South, and I'm pretty sure we got Roots, but for the most part, the TV miniseries didn't take off. In prime time, anyway. However, in 1984, the ITV network lost out in its bid to transmit the Los Angeles-based Olympics and was looking for something to screen as counter-programming. For some reason, ITV thought that what British audiences would like as a counterpoint to lots of people running and jumping around in LA would be to watch lots of people running and jumping around in LA. And what do you know? They were right. ITV aired both miniseries V and V The Final Battle, stripped across five nights, to huge commercial acclaim, topping 10 million viewers and trouncing the BBC's coverage of the Olympics. I discovered V, as most people did, by accident. ITV trailered the show quite extensively, but it aired after the news at 10.30pm, which was considered quite late, and as such my parents weren't about to let me stay up till 12.30pm at 12 years of age. However, at this point, I had my beaten-up old black-and-white TV bequeathed to me by my mum, and I tuned in to watch V in magnificent black-and-white, and and sat gripped to the screen for its two-hour runtime. V was written, directed, and produced by Kenneth Johnson, alumni of The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, and The Incredible Hulk. Inspired by the anti-fascist novel It Can't Happen Here by Sinclair Lewis, Johnson penned a script for a miniseries entitled Storm Warning, but NBC passed. Johnson, having learned well from H.G. Wells and Jonathan Swift, retooled the script as a science fiction piece with aliens from another world arriving on Earth, allegedly in peace, to promise Earth the fruits of their extensive scientific knowledge. It is, of course, a ruse. The visitors, as they come to be known, are here to harvest humans as food and drain the planet of its natural resources. Rewatching the miniseries on DVD, I was struck by how well the initial episode holds up. It starts in media res in a war-torn El Salvador, where we are introduced to Mark Singer's adventurous news cameraman Mike Donovan. The parallels between the resistance fighters in El Salvador at the top of Part 1 and the resistance fighters in LA at the conclusion of Part 2 is cannily realised by Johnson. This opening is quite action-packed, and Donovan is only saved from certain death from the terrorist faction by the arrival of a UFO. The fact that the terrorists are the worst shot since the stormtroopers in Star Wars may also have aided Donovan in his quest to stay alive. We quickly learn that there are 50 such UFOs, called Mother Ships, all over the major cities of planet Earth. Why one decided therefore to rock up over a dusty part of El Salvador is never explained. Perhaps it got lost. Given the major landmarks and important cities the motherships dock above, one also wonders why one's even over L.A. Seems as useless as having one over El Salvador, to be honest, but presumably, despite an impressive $13 million budget, the production wouldn't stretch to having the series be set in Washington or New York, two locations that would have made much more sense. Anyway, the aliens appear to be just like us, apart from an aversion to light and weird reverberating voices, and they are quickly welcomed into society when they state that they are only here to harvest some useless chemicals that they need, and in return they will give us medical and technological advancements. 
However, a scientist later reveals that there is a vast conspiracy in his community to undermine the visitors, and slowly, scientists are ostracised and forced to flee underground. When Mike Donovan's Salman notices that all the scientists that have spoken out against the conspiracy are suddenly left-handed, where before they were righties, Donovan sneaks aboard the mothership to investigate. The first half of the 100-minute part one is gripping and tightly paced. Johnson introduces V's extremely large cast economically and effectively, setting up who is friendly and who isn't almost straight away. It isn't subtle. The visitors are almost immediately seen to introduce visitors' friends groups similar to the Nazi youth movement. Even less subtle, an elderly Jewish guy named Abraham points this out, but people tell him, oh, he's just been silly. Even before the big reveal, we are shown lines being drawn between people who don't quite trust the visitors and those that immediately capitulate for personal or professional gain. As Donovan sneaks around the ship, he learns of the visitors' conversion process. This has been used to brainwash scientists and other respectable pillars of society to sow the seeds of discord. The project is being run by Diana, portrayed by Jane Badler, and if anyone remembers V at all, it's due to the scene where Donovan witnesses Diana eating live rodents. Johnson milks the tension for this scene wonderfully. Diana and other visitors keep picking up mice and then turning away from the camera so we, the viewer, don't actually see what they're doing until the big reveal. Badler picks up a large rat, places it in her mouth, and then, as her throat expands, she swallows it whole. The animatronic of Badler is pretty ropey by today's standards, but the throat swallowing is still mightily effective. And Singer, not the greatest actor in the world, sells the horror of this beautifully as he stumbles back stunned. However, we're not done with the big reveals. Stumbling through the mothership erduct in an effort to escape with his videotaped evidence, Donovan stumbles across a visitor taking his eyes out to reveal a lizard-like eyeball. The visitor spots Donovan, and they get into a quite a down-and-dirty fight in which Donovan rips the visitor's face off. The makeup effects here are still remarkable. We never see the full lizard, just quick shots, and it's slimy and icky and unpleasant. Johnson is again very canny here, only showing us enough of the face for our minds to complete the visual without the need for a full-on shot. It keeps it more in our mind's eye, and as such is far more effective. Ripping the visitor's face off is another memorable image from the show. In school, I used to paint the back of my hand green and then paint over the green with PDA glue, which, when set, could be peeled off just so I could peel my skin off like the visitors in V. Nobody else do this. Just me. Moving on, Donovan, startled, tries to flee, and the visitor spits venom in Donovan's face. Johnson never takes the time to explain why the visitors have normal tongues when they have the human masks, but forked tongues when they are removed, but careful examination of the visitor's disguise is a slippery slope that leads the audience to realise just how implausible it actually is. So we'll just accept it and move on. Donovan escapes, but is ostracised and branded a traitor by the visitors. He's in good company, as, back on Earth, a number of scientists and cops who are distrustful of the visitors and wondering where all the missing people have gone are starting to band together. One scientist, a doctor, is killed trying to steal medical equipment, and his brother, Elias, a petty criminal who has lived his entire life in his most successful brother's shadow, is brought into the fold as Dr Juliet Parrish, played by childhood crush Faye Grant, starts to organise a nascent rebellion. The final scene sees Abraham witness a group of children vandalising a visitor propaganda poster, and he snatches the spray can away from them and then sprays V over the poster. 
for victory, he says, as part one ends. Oddly, none of the kids tell him to fuck off, which made the scene stirring, but not particularly realistic. I was pleasantly surprised by how good this first storment was. As I said, there is very little subtlety in the allegory, but the characters are interesting, especially the ones who collaborate for personal gain. Donovan's newscaster girlfriend sells Donovan out to enhance her career. Donovan's mother sells him out for status. It's a good job Donovan has Mark Singer's ego, or he'd presumably start to feel a little unloved. Petty crook Elias loves the visitor's arrival, as it's made his life of larceny much easier, but changes sides when his brother is killed, becoming a key member of the resistance movement. Julie is forced to be a leader, despite never wanting to be one, and she finds the role demanding. Her struggling to handle how she went from wanting to save lives to taking them is well played by Grant. Donovan is a bit of a squirr, but it's compensated by the bad guys who throw themselves into their roles with relish, be it Richard Hurd as John, or Jane Badler as Diana. When it first aired on UK TV, ITV completely cut off the first set of credits, and then cut out the secondary credits, giving the first part an Orson Welles' War of the Worlds type vibe, by just starting straight after the news as if it were an extension of the news. I'm not normally a fan of editing shows, but this was very effective, adding an extra dimension to V. I was pleasantly surprised to see the DVD was shot in 185 to 1, a 16 by 9 aspect ratio, as Johnson thought the Mini could claw back some of its extensive budget via a theatrical release around the rest of the world, a practice that had reaped dividends for Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers. For whatever reason, this never happened, and it's probably for the best. Whilst those shows had pilots that received theatrical releases and were clearly set-ups for further adventures, V has no third act at all, leaving a number of plot threads dangling that cinema goes would probably been a tad cheesed off about. The first episode is also dedicated to actress Dominic Dunn, best known for her portrayal as the eldest daughter in Poltergeist who was murdered by her boyfriend just as the show entered production. She was cast as Robin Maxwell, and the DVD has some photos of her rehearsing with the cast. Part 2, while still impressive, is sadly not as entertaining as Part 1. With the mysteries of the visitors revealed, the big shock for the second chapter, that the missing humans are being carted off for food, is a bit of a damp squib, coming good 20 years after To Serve Man erred. Johnson, however, does a good job of establishing that, just as there are humans that are turncoats, there are visitors who do not approve of the course of action being taken by their leader, and they have set up a fifth column. This episode also raises a lot of questions I can't imagine the writer wanting to answer. Whilst he does provide scientist Robert Maxwell with an actually, reptiles could have evolved like this on Earth moment, he kind of glosses over other elements. For example, the fifth columnist who gives Donovan her uniform that enables him to get off the mothership is seen stripping down to her underwear, implying that the visitors' disguises cover their complete body. Not only that, but she's pretty hot for a lizard. Viewers do start pondering the disguise, though, when presented with scenes like this, and questions such as, well, where are the tails, do start to crop up in the viewer's mind. The visitors are even seen to be anatomically correct and fully functional. Diana orders a visitor youth leader, Brian, to impregnate a human girl, the aforementioned Robin Maxwell, Blood Tefkin taking over Dominic Dunn's role at the 11th hour, an act which Brian throws himself into with gusto. Another plot point I was a tad confused about is the revelation that the visitors also apparently want our water. But I thought H2O was one of the most common compounds in the galaxy, so travelling all the way to Earth for it would seem counterproductive, if my memory of science is correct. 
The visitor's systematically discrediting and eliminating the scientists is nicely handled, however, and the way humanity turns its back on science and knowledge is depicted with alarming accuracy, and none of the quibbles get in the way of the action and drama of part two, with Johnson successfully balancing spectacle with character, and he even gives everybody a decent moment, a remarkable achievement with a cast this size. Singer, sadly, isn't as good in this part, falling back on his macho posturing and mannered body language instead of acting, something that will become more pronounced as the series continues, but Badler is impressive as the potentially bisexual Diana, who seems happy to flirt with anything if it gets her what she wants. Faye Grant also delivers a good performance as Julie Parrish, a young woman who never wanted to be a resistance leader, but finds herself forced into the role. It is fortunate that this rattles along at such a fast pace, as part two is chock full of remarkable coincidences if one thinks about it for more than a minute. Donovan, happening upon many other members of the cast during his tour of the mothership, is stretching credibility given that the mothership was described as being five miles across, and his sudden ability to fly alien shuttles was a real stroke of luck, but the finale is suitably rousing. The visitors track down the Resistance base, thanks to Robert Maxwell turning supergrass when he learns the visitors have his daughter. They tell Robert they will release Robin if he gives the location of the hidden rebel base, and gives him time to move his family. They lie to Robert, which was a real shock that the villains lie to people, and attack the Resistance base early, killing his wife. The FX are pretty good in this scene, even today, and various members of the cast don't make it out alive. Part 2 ends as inconclusively as Part 1, and is clearly set up for further instalments. The Resistance has scored a minor victory, thanks to the visitors underestimating them, but there are still many unresolved plot points. This is because Johnson had envisioned V as an event miniseries to run five, maybe six episodes per year, and had plans for the series to run for at least a decade. NBC, seeing the ratings, had other ideas, and wanted a sequel that wrapped it all up, an event that they could exploit for maximum advertisement revenue and ratings points. Johnson argued for his vision, but NBC stood firm, and Johnson quit the project. V would never be as good as these opening instalments, as, despite the problems with the premise and logic, Johnson had a way with character and drama that allowed you to forgo any problems and just go with the story. Without his steady hand and singular vision, V would rapidly plummet in quality with Johnson's departure. The music of V was by long-time Johnson collaborator Joe Harnell, who was responsible for the score to both The Bionic Woman and The Incredible Hulk. But his score for this, whilst good, isn't as memorable as either of those shows. It's available on Harnell's website. The sequel miniseries V The Final Battle had a much better theme, even if the score by Dennis McCarthy veered towards cheese. To whet your appetite, here's the theme to V The Final Battle by Baddy Devorzon and Joseph Conlon.
Very Terminator, I think. Johnson had already scripted the six-hour sequel, but when he quit, the script was rewritten badly, according to an interview Johnson gave to Starlog magazine. Some of his ideas would be incorporated back into the script in a cut-and-paste job as the sequel went into production, but the majority of the work would be done by renter-writers Brian Taggart, Peggy Goldman, Lillian Weezer, actually a pen name for Johnson, Faustus Buck, Diane Frolov, and Harry and Rini Longstreet. Why it took this many writers to come up with the collection of clichés that is V the Final Battle is unknown, but Johnson's steady hand is sorely missed. It was directed competently by Richard T. Heffron, but with little of the verve or fleur of the original. Running for three two-hour episodes this time, the final battle starts out quite well. It's not as moodily lit as the opening miniseries, being almost too bright in places, but the first episode still has the requisite amount of interesting social commentary, even featuring, of all things, an even-handed discussion about abortion, when it turns out Diana's experiment was a success and Robin has fallen pregnant with Brian's lizard child. Picking up about eight months after the events of the first miniseries, the Resistance are having some success with small hit-and-run-style operations, but Donovan believes they need a bigger target. When John, a returning Richard Hurd, announces a big announcement will take place at the LA Convention Centre, the Resistance propose to make their move. Without Johnson behind the camera reining in some of the performers, some of the actors tend to go a tad too broad. Jane Badler and Andrew Prime both amp up the evil, eschewing the more nuanced performance they gave in the first miniseries, and Mark Singer also has a tendency to overplay the mannerisms, posing dramatically at every opportunity. He also seems to have lost a few buttons off his shirt. The action is nicely mounted, but it all feels too safe for a ragtag band of resistors, and the visitors don't seem to be too concerned about them. There's also a few too many illogicalities in the script concerning how the Resistance are able to get as many people as they do into the convention centre without anyone noticing. But the ending, with Julie Parrish being captured by Diana, is a pretty decent cliffhanger, and Faye Grant is easily the most valuable player for the show, still carrying herself with dignity as the strain continues to get to Julie. Completely abandoned is the idea that scientists are evil, and the laziness of the cut-and-paste script starts to rear its ugly head. Willie, the nice-guy visitor, played by Robert Englund, points out that Robin must nearly be at full term, as the green patch around her neck is nearly complete, signifying the end of her pregnancy. But this raises the question as to how a green patch around the neck can even be seen on lizards. Even the casting was botched in two key places. The first was that Johnson wanted a young, hip priest for the show, giving some texture to the character, where the series itself cast a clichéd elderly avuncular Irish priest. Part one of the three-part sequel, despite these issues, still at least feels like the V of the first mini, and I'd be lying if I said it wasn't enjoyable. It's pretty, w- it's pretty well mounted, action-wise, and the story's fine. Part 2 picks up with new Resistance recruit Ham Tyler, played by the ever-excellent Michael Ironside, showing up just as the Resistance HQ is raided. Despite the fact that Ironside is brilliant, this was, as far as Johnson was concerned, the second botched casting job. Ken Johnson's script called for Ham Tyler to be a man in a wheelchair, grizzled and embittered. He and Donovan share a history that had, in the original script, a scene where Donovan goes to punch the wheelchair-bound Tyler, who instead turns the tables and knocks Donovan on his arse. Casting Ironside is never a bad thing, but it does completely change Johnson's original intent. The raid on the rebel base was also more evidence of the botched writing. Dick Miller, who in the last episode provided the equipment to forge the IDs needed to get the Resistance into the LA Convention Centre, sells out the Resistance. But we get no indication he even knew where their HQ was, or that he was even a member of the Resistance. He was just helping them out, presumably an underworld contact of Elias, and was presumably being paid. The Resistance 
they had any brains wouldn't really have told him very much. The resistance of forced to move location as Julie, now undergoing Diana's conversion, may give them up. Another character is added to the cast to cause complications and try to usurp uh, Diana's authority. Pamela, played by Sarah Douglas, largely because V hadn't filled out its quota for British actors portraying bad guys, shows up to be all campy and spar with Diana, presumably as a reaction to Dynasty. And this does leave the show down the unfortunate path of campy soap opera, something that will become much worse as the show progresses. Julie is rescued rather easily, and she and Donovan enter into a relationship which features some of the cheesiest music in the show. The Resistance then find out that the visitors are siphoning off all of LA's water and set about destroying the plant. More lazy writing follows as it's Donovan and Julie who do the reconnaissance dressed as visitors. Firstly, one has to wonder where they get the extra visitor uniform from, given that previously they only had one uniform, the one Donovan escaped the mothership in, and one weapon, again, the one Donovan got. Second, is it really a smart move to send the two most recognisable faces in the resistance movement on undercover missions? Both Julie and Donovan have been on worldwide TV as the face of the resistance. That's not to say part two doesn't have a few exciting scenes and action and even some touching character bits. Faye Grant is again the best actor present, still giving her A-game to scene where Julie starts using her left hand to brush her hair, and her concern that she's been converted is deftly handled. The death of elderly character Ruby, killed by turncoat Daniel, is horrific and sad, especially as she was one of the only characters to get under the surface with Ham Tyler, in a lovely scene where both discuss their love of theatre, which gives him some nice shading. For the most part, though, this is all action and soap operatics by now. There's very little subtext, no commentary on social ills, and, through the clumsy use of stock footage from Earthquake, when the resistance blow the water processing plant, they cause far more damage and death than the visitors have. The episode ends with Robin Maxwell giving birth and Donovan being traded for his son, who the visitors have on their ship. Donovan, succumbing to Diana's torture techniques and grassing up Martin, the visitors' fifth column leader and Donovan's contact, is one of the truly suspenseful scenes in the episode, and that he gives up far easier than Julie did says a lot about her character, but nothing is ultimately made of this. However, the birth is another one of the scenes that people remember from the show, with one normal baby with a lizard tongue and one lizard with bright blue eyes being born, and whilst incredibly campy by today's standards, these scenes were the talk of the land when they first heard. By part three of the final battle, however, we've moved on from the social and political allegory of the original minute and even the first part of the final battle, and moved over, graduating onto schlock B-grade science fiction. In brief, Donovan is freed by Martin and the two escape. Back at the resistance camp, the lizard twin dies and the human twin exhibits antisocial behaviour, so Father Andrew, Bigora, takes Elizabeth to Diana. Diana has her own problems as she's been stabbed in the back by Pamela and Stephen. When Tyler and Donovan track down Daniel the Bastard for killing Ruby, they also kidnap Brian, the visitor who impregnated Robin. She gasses him with the red dust serum Julie and Robert have been developing. Conveniently for everyone, this red dust kills visitors, but is harmless to humans. And with that, we have a toxin that will kill the visitors. All very convenient, if you ask me. Diana meets with Father Andrew, and he introduces Robin's child, Elizabeth, to her. The child has accelerated growth, so they don't have to keep a baby on set for extended periods. And Diana then kills Father Andrew for exposing her to faith. For an encore, Diana then kills Pamela for her betrayal. Diana then takes over the running of the mothership, when she finds out from Sean, Donovan's son who's been converted, about the Red Dust, but the Resistance have orchestrated an attack all over the world. 
The red dust doesn't have to kill the visitors, Diana reveals. Simply contaminating the water supply makes the planet useless to them. Diana flees and everyone has a cheesy grin before the credits roll. This episode, more than any other, exemplifies the lazy writing that became the norm after Johnson's departure. Diana watches a conversation about how she's failing in her leadership on a monitor on the bridge where everyone can hear it. Donovan's escape is played for laughs in the skydiving scene where Martin helps him escape through the trash compactors. Presumably the visitors don't have the brains to have all the trash compactors monitored. The dynasty hijinks between Pamela and Diana become laughably bad, with Badler and Douglas camping it up as if they were auditioning for One Life to Live. The Resistance don't even think for a second that Sean Donovan has been converted, apart from a few lines from Julie. And it's a far cry from only two episodes ago where they trusted nobody. In addition to all these illogicalities, the Resistance discover what killed the lizard twin does not affect the human twin, and without knowing if it affects humans or visitors, they manufacture a ton of stuff, a no doubt costly and time-consuming process. Apparently as well, during the accelerated ageing, Elizabeth's tongue becomes more human. What's Michael Ironside is good value as Ham Tyler. It's never explained how he found out that Daniel the Turncoat was responsible for killing Ruby. And whilst Daniel's ultimate fate, four words, Soylent Green is people, is satisfying, it's more lazy writing that typified this final episode. The scene where Diana kills Father Andrew is played by Badler, twirling her metaphorical moustache for all it's worth, but Johnson's original idea was to have Diana actually be swayed by Father Andrew's talk of faith and kill him out of fear. The final episode also applies large dollops of schmaltz onto the proceedings, with some real cringeworthy scenes between Donovan and his son and Donovan and Julie. I'm all for genuine sentiment. The scenes between Robin and Robert Maxwell discussing how Robert wanted to kill Elizabeth and if Robin is a murderer for killing Brian are well handled and touching. But there's a saccharine element to the Donovan scenes that Mark Singer can't make palatable. There's also no explanation for where the Resistance get all those hot air balloons from. However, it's the ending that really lets the show down. Endings are notoriously difficult, but this one is bad sci-fi writing 101. For one, the red dust works awfully quickly, cutting down visitors in mid-stride, leading to comical, almost Keystone Cops-esque pratfalls. Secondly, visitors have not exhibited any signs of having any kind of supernatural powers, and I'm pretty sure we humans don't have any. So how a human-visitor hybrid like Elizabeth now has the ability to glow like a ready-break advert and disarm the mothership's Genesis device comes completely out of left field. It's a hugely unsatisfactory ending to a series that started out as promising, but became Dallas in space. None of this is to say that V the Final Battle isn't fun. There are a few exciting action set pieces and some decent acting, particularly from Michael Durrell, Michael Ironside and Jason Bernard, but Johnson's original intent was a tad less happy. Diana, having set the Genesis device on countdown, was originally supposed to take Elizabeth and flee to another mothership. There were 50 of these things, remember, not just the one in L.A. Whilst Martin sacrifices himself, steering that mothership out of Earth's atmosphere where it explodes. Donovan and Julie escape in a shuttle and follow Diana as they realise that whilst the motherships are leaving, there are still thousands of humans in stasis on those ships. Sadly, Johnson never got to realise his vision of V, something that irks him to this day, and we are left with the saddest words of Tongan Pen. What could have been? V was nevertheless a smash hit in both miniseries incarnations, and it was quickly decided to turn it into a weekly series. Numerous changes were made, from dropping half of the cast to removing the visitors' distinctive voices, although there was at least an attempt to keep some of the World War II parallels of the original miniseries in the plot. 
Liberation Day, the first episode, is, to be fair, not a bad start to the series. Diana is captured and offered a cushy deal if she'll help humanity. Diana's liberation in exchange for sharing her knowledge echoes Operation Paperclip, where Nazi scientists who committed heinous acts of war were given cushy positions in the US in exchange for aiding the US in the space race, a political compromise that still divides opinion to this day, and it's nice to see a return to this moral ambiguity. The rest of the episode, though, is soap opera stuff, a kind of Dallas meets the A-team soap opera action-adventure sci-fi hybrid that, for this first episode, works moderately well. This is made quite clear in the opening credits, a Dallas rip-off, with a jolly new theme by Dennis McCarthy. Here it is. Well, a returning Michael Durrell seems to have forgotten that he's a scientist as well, running to Julie the minute Elizabeth starts to shed her skin, something she did in the miniseries and has presumably done a few times in the year's gap between the mini and the series. He also seems to have forgotten he has two other children. All the producers did. Diana's escape foreshadows the series' descent into stock footage hell, something that has plagued many a sci-fi TV show before this one, with all the SFX footage being lifted from the first miniseries. Elizabeth would then morph into a pretty blonde as the show has a totty quotient to meet, but then she'd just stop ageing. Not content with reusing their own footage, the producers would steal from other sources, in one case War of the Worlds, and characters are dropped and added with reckless abandon. Jennifer Cook takes over the role of Elizabeth, and June Chadwick fills the Sarah Douglas role as Lydia, a.k.a. contractually obligated British actor to play bad guy. That's a genuine Hollywood contractual obligation, I urge you to look it up. To keep the cost down, new character Nathan Bates, played by Lois and Clark's Lane Smith, declares L.A. to be an open city, similar to Paris in World War II, and we have a stalemate, presumably to keep the budget down. Also, to keep the budget down, the Resistance now numbers about seven people. Breakout, the third episode, is interesting, but more for the -the behind-the-scenes shenanigans than any on-screen excitement. Dropped from broadcast on its initial run by NBC, who thought it was too violent, its omission created a few continuity bumps with episode four. For the overseas package, the WB included it in the sales, but the individual ITV networks that screened the show had the option to screen it or not, as, due to some reshooting and re-editing, episode four repeats certain scenes. 
My ITV network, Granada, never aired this episode on its original run in 1985, and in those pre-internet days I was blissfully unaware of its existence until sci-fi screened the series in the mid-90s. The first thing I can say about having rewatched this is that if NBC thought this was violent, the people in charge were really oversensitive. The episode is actually quite risible, boasting languorous pacing, lots of tedious overlong zooms, and some terrible acting and writing. Donovan and Tyler, having trekked to Ojai, the birthplace of the Six Million Dollar Man trivia fans, in an effort to locate Donovan's son, are caught and sentenced to a visitor internment camp. The camp is surrounded by a sand moat that contains crivets, visitor sand sharks, that prevent escape. Needless to say, they do escape, but not before they encounter Nathan Bates' son Kyle, who Diana is also after, so she can trade him for the star child Elizabeth, who she still doesn't know has morphed into a young woman. The budget strings are starting to show, with a number of actors having no lines as a speaking part costs more, and there is a lot of off-screen laser fire. The final fight, as Donovan and Tyler escape in a shuttle, is all stock from the miniseries, which was last used two episodes ago. It wouldn't be so bad if the use of stock footage made sense, but Donovan manages to shoot a chasing fighter from behind, despite clearly being in front of it. A lot of the acting is burly competent, with only Michael Ironside and Faye Grant even trying. Everyone else is simply cashing a paycheck, although Jane Badler, having long ago tossed subtlety out of the window, seems to relish being camp. The episode also introduces us to a new series regular and astonishing chunk of Elm, Jeff Yeager as Kyle Bates. Jaeger always seemed to confuse looking cool with acting, and that's what he tries to do here. He tries to look cool with his bouffant hair. Failing at this, he tries to look cool with wet hair. Failing in this, he tries to look cool with no top on. Failing at this, he pulls out all the stops and soaks himself from head to toe, and then wrestles on the ground with Ham Tyler. Slash fiction alert. Oh, and in case you were wondering, he fails at that as well. V has given up only three short episodes into the run. The idea of a visitor internment camp is interesting but squandered. Why are they here? What are they digging for? What purpose do they serve? No answer is given to these questions. What people are rounded up and for what reason? No answer. Why is Elias now serving visitors in his bar? What exactly does he serve that they would find appetising? Who thought Jeff Yeager was a good actor? All these questions and more go unanswered. However, there is one funny gag right at the end. Tyler walks into Elias' bar and asks for a drink whatever's on the house. Elias pours him a glass of water. This is also the first episode to feature Howard K. Smith on an underground news broadcast about the Resistance. Not that I had a clue who Howard K. Smith was. The Deception, the next episode, is contradictory as everyone has to meet Kyle again for the first time, and it's a blatant steal of a plot from an episode of Erwolf. As I journeyed through the series, I found the bargain basement acting, nursery school level understanding of science fiction, and the level of screen time given to Kyle Buffont Bates to be off-putting. I lost the will to live. One episode, a blatant A-team rip-off, but without Stephen J. Cannell's wit, and called The Overlord, boasted location filming on the Hazard County set, which was the most interesting thing about this tedious collection of clichés involving motorcycle gangs. Mark Singer has perfected his ability to pose and strut in a frankly laughable way, and the guy can't even walk into a room naturally. Jane Battler's hips continue to steal every scene they are in, but by the time we reach episode 8, The Dissident, a frankly horrible episode about a blind pacifist weapons designer, yes, I said that right, a pacifist weapons designer, who invents a force field around LA that disintegrates people, I had completely given up. 
none of this episode made even the tiniest bit of sense. Why would a pacifist invent a weapon that disintegrates people? Why is he even here on the mothership? Why were a human disguise that has blind eyes? Why does his deus ex machina ring cause even computers from miles away to explode? Why is the guy Diana shagged last week and then killed still alive this week? Why does the blind guy say, Look! The Mark of Zon! when referring to Elizabeth. He's blind. He can't look at anything. We're even treated to another outing for the stock footage of the shuttles fighting that's been used about four times already. Clearly, past its glory days, I had every intention of covering this episode by episode in the same way Tom Panneris covered my so-called life on Pop Culture Affidavit, but the series became even more eye-rollingly bad as it went along that I barely made it through the first eight episodes. And at this point, I admit it, lovely listener, I gave up. V, the series, may be the single worst assault on the intelligence of TV science fiction fans. Hell, TV viewers generally in the history of the medium, given how well it started out. Lost in Space is better than this. V is moderately well remembered by people of a certain age. Merchandise was popular with toys and such, and a series of novels which started with a novelization of the 10-hour mini by Anne Crispin was followed up with East Coast Crisis, also by Crispin but joined by Howard Weinstein, which took place partially in New York. Both books were very good as I recall, although I haven't read them in years. There was a new V novel published every month with 16 books in total, and they were published until 1988. The series was brought back with a post-millennial makeover in the mid-2000s, but it wasn't very good, and Ken Johnson returned to V recently with the novel V, The Second Generation, which ignores the events of the final battle and picks up 20 years after the initial miniseries. I've never managed to score a copy, so I can't say if it's worth reading. Johnson, who owns the film rights to V, is still trying to get a movie continuation off the ground. I wish him every success, but as more time passes, it may be time to acknowledge that V is a fond memory and best left to fade away. They arrived in 50 motherships, offering their friendship and advanced technology to Earth. Mike Donovan and Juliet Parrish infiltrated their ranks and soon discovered some startling secrets. Shipping food.
that stands between us and the visitors. Okay, on to the email section of the show. I appreciate everyone who emails in. And the first one that has emailed in today is Professor Alan. Hello, Professor. Main host Leyland and super special guest host Leyland. Well, he's not here today, so you just got me. As I mentioned in episode 36 of the Quarterbin podcast, plug! Up to that point, my entire history with John Constantine had been your coverage of Hellblazer. Because of that episode, my entire history now consists of those episodes of Hey Kids Comics, that one issue of the new 52 Constantine, and his appearance on Justice League Dark. Suffice it to say, I didn't bring much baggage with me to the first episode of the TV show, and I'm sure that helped me enjoy it. Constantine certainly looked right to me, but I'll have to trust your ears to tell me if he sounded right. And as Michael pointed out, he did act like the new 52 Constantine, as far as I can tell. Both Emily and I noted the supernatural similarities, but I give viewers more credit than thinking that Supernatural invented Angel vs. Demon as a genre. We also watched Sleepy Hollow, and Constantine also bears some resemblance to that show. But that doesn't matter. I can be a sucker for heaven and hell stories, angels and demons, if they told well. I'll definitely be sticking with it for the time being. Keep up the good work with all of your shows. Well, thank you, Professor Allen, host of the Quarter Bin podcast and Short Box Showcase, as he's put in his little signature. Um, yeah, the Hellblazer one, we just kind of threw that together after watching it. It wasn't supposed to be deep, critical thinking or anything. It, uh, it was just our initial gut reactions to it. Second episode wasn't as good as the first, to be honest, but uh, we'll, we'll give it a go. Tim Elliott emailed in with Look Before You Leap. Greetings, Andrew. Congratulations on your first two-part Planet of Glittering Delights. I must commend you, learned gentlemen, on a most enjoyable episode about Quantum Leap. I would catch QL occasionally in its initial run, and while I enjoy the show, I never considered myself a fan. I do recall watching the series finally in the morning after a 20-hour shift at work. I also was a little confused at the end, but agree it's nice that they left it somewhat ambiguous. They trusted their audience and did not feel the need to tie up loose ends, spell out who was controlling Sam's leaps and give us a traditional happy ending. You'll spot the guest stars as a similar to a game I play with Mission Impossible and the original Star Trek. The amount of cross-pollination between the two shows you are guaranteed to see an actor who appears in both, especially in seasons 1, 2, 3 of M.I. The fact that Martin Landau was up for the role of Mr. Spock just adds spice to the game. I'm happy to help keep the heat on in the palace. Cheers, Tim Elliott. Yeah, and the fact that Leonard Nimoy replaced Martin Landau on Mission Impossible, I think that uh, probably adds some an element of enjoyment to your Mission Impossible game. Well, thank you very much. I very much enjoyed doing the, the Quantum Leap episode with Bill and, uh, and Michael. Hopefully I can line up another episode where uh, I have special guests on. That'll be nice, I think. That'd certainly be a lot of fun. Because some people have said to me, well, why do you never have guests on your other show? Which is obviously uh, Hey Kids Comics. And the answer to that is, I think Hey Kids lends itself to guests. I'll be honest. I think it's um, it's a show that uh, is is what it is, in that it's me and Michael talking about comics. But this, this is, this is prime. This is open for having anybody on it. That's what you are. The next email is from Derek Crabb, who just says, Hello, Andrew and special guest Michael. Was interested to hear your take on Constantine on TV. Though I have to admit, I've heard the knee-jerk reaction about the non-smoking when he does put out a cigarette in the bar at the close of the pilot. Sure, it's a blink-and-you'll-miss-it moment, but it's there. Anyway, look forward to seeing more episodes of this series, even the fact that it's on NBC on Friday night seems to be a death sentence. Take care, Derek. Fanhole's podcast. Extraordinary host and host of and uh, 
writer of the history of comics on film at hocof.blogspot.com. I don't think it was a knee-jerk reaction that we had. I was not aware of much of anything with regards to the the Constantine TV show. I knew Matt Ryan was involved in it, and I sent a couple of pictures of him, and on the basis of that, we decided to check it out. We we didn't really have any preconceived notions. My favourite non-smoking smoking moment from the second episode was when he's walking down the street with his back to us, and you can see the smoke rising out of his mouth, so you don't actually see him smoking, because when he turns around, he's took the cigarette out of his mouth, which I think goes back to the, the producers saying that they are coming up with ever more ingenious ways of showing John smoking without actually showing him smoking, which is quite clever of them. Jack Bon emailed in. It was a first-time email letter to the show. Hello, Jack. Greetings, Andrew. It's, it's a pleasure to, to have you here. I've been listening to a double feature of your Battlestar Galactica commentary and Book Rogers stuff. As you suspect of your listeners, I did not pull out the movie to watch along. The Region 1 DVD is a bit of a disappointment. The image is matted into a widescreen format, I presume, as used at the theatre, but is not optimised for 16 by 9 so it is literally the TV picture with black bars hiding the top and bottom portions. I was familiar enough with the Galactica pilot that I could tell what was happening on screen when you and your wife referred to it or when the sound came through in the background. Part of the familiarity comes from the fact that we had made an audio recording of every episode and listened to them over and over. My older brother had been making recordings of Star Trek since reading about the idea in the foreword to one of James Blish's adaptations, putting the microphone up against the speaker and pulling the recorder back to a safe distance from the TV to operate it. These cassettes could never have been used to make reconstruction of the episodes if Paramount had wiped the series. The background is filled with the sound of my brother yelling at the rest of us kids to keep quiet and the sound of the rest of the kids carrying on like wild animals and running around the room, frequently tripping over the microphone cord. Galactica being on in the evening meant that we were a bit more subdued, but there is one point, the introduction of Bolter, where my older brother could be heard excitedly saying, That's core! That's core! Always makes me laugh to hear it. And to think he came that close to inventing the commentary track. That's actually pretty cool. I don't think I ever recall recorded full episodes onto cassette, because we had a video from me being about ten. But I do remember making my own soundtracks to films and TV shows by recording them, by holding the microphone up to the, the speaker on the TV. I did that quite a lot. Jack continues, your opinions and my correspond right down the line, except I think you like the Viper more than I do. I always thought it tried too hard to remind us of the X-Wing, which itself was too much like an aeroplane for my tastes. In Star Wars, I found the Y-Wing more interesting, and on TV I liked Buck Rogers' fighter better, even though it was beige. Yeah, I love the Viper. I think the Viper... I think the reason I like the Viper is its design is just so simple and yet so elegant and graceful. It's up there with Erwolf, for me, as just being perfect. It's a muscle car in space. It gets where it's going by pure power. And uh, yeah, that's brilliant. I love the I mean, it makes no sense, you know, turbos in space, but it looks cool. And sometimes it's all you want. Jack signs off by saying, keep up the glittering delights. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate you emailing it. Thank you very much. Uh, already said that. Our final email is David Pascarella's back. Books Disco Palace. Hi Andy. Your episode on Book Rogers was, excuse the pun, a blast from the past. Another show that brought back a bunch of fond memories. 
but Rogers was another favourite of mine the first season I preferred much more to the revamped version of the second season. As a child I was always fascinated by what was going on outside the enclosed cities and was always disappointed we never returned to the ruins. When Buck Rogers originally heard it was about two to three years before we got our first VCR so it was a matter of having to watch the broadcast carefully to see if you could catch any extra details. Extra sources of information or background was very scarce in the pre-internet world. I actually remember in school someone had a Buck Rogers lunchbox and one of the scenes was at his family grave with the ruins of Chicago. I studied that image like there was going to be a test. I always wanted to know exactly what happened. I understood there was a nuclear war, but what happened after that? How did the world, the whole world, if there was a whole world, come together? Alas, I never got any information. Two episodes in particular always stood out for me. I don't remember which season they heard. In one, some old footage was discovered that implicated Buck was involved in some ways in the planning of World War Three, and he was put on trial. Uh, breaking into David's email, that was testimony of a traitor from series two. The other episode, I think, was season two. Buck was sent back in his mind the day before his mission. He's sitting at his mother's house in the present day and telling her about the crazy dream that was the future. Then the sequence of the events unfolds and he comes to the future. Was that not... A dream of Jennifer in the first season? Or was that the same episode, Testimony of a Traitor? No, see, I'm mixing them up in my head now as well. Anyway, it was a fun show, continues David, and I was able to score the entire series for nine ninety nine recently on Amazon through the Two True Freaks network, of course. Of course, David, no, we would expect no less. I haven't had time to write, but I greatly enjoyed the Quantum Leap episode. Thank you for another great one, and bringing back fond memories. All the best, David Pascarella. Well, you are very welcome, David. Thank you for emailing in. Thank you, everybody, who emailed in. For the moment, if you like what you hear on the palace, you can hear me. Uh, you can email me, sorry, on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. I may set up his own email address one day, but, you know, on the list of things to do, that's not a particularly high priority. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this one about V. I do apologise that uh, I bailed halfway through and couldn't get through the entire series, but life's too short, quite frankly. <laughs> And I hope you'll enjoy me. I hope you'll enjoy me. I hope you'll join me for whatever I do next, whatever that may be. See you then. Bye bye.